Matthew chapter 26. So we are finishing up this passage that uh, this will be the third week that I've looked at it. And Wade came and looked at it again this week. So this is four times. But it's a good question this morning. Here's the question. Who should partake of the Lord's Supper? Fair question, right? Matter of fact, every time we do the Lord's Supper, we say just a tad about what we practice as a church about the Lord's Supper. But today we're looking at the first Lord's Supper. And how about this? The first partakers of the Lord's Supper. That's what we're looking at today. And it should tell us something about who should partake of the Lord's Supper. Amen? So let's look at the text again. Now as they were eating, who's the they? Those in that upper room, the Lord Jesus Christ and His twelve closest followers. One in which would have been worthy of having the Lord's Supper served to me. Would I have been one of those first twelve if I'd have been there? That's something to kind of think about. I don't know of a I don't know of a church that doesn't practice some form of communion. Now I know churches that don't do it very often. I know churches that it's not planned when they will do it. I know churches that do it every Sunday morning and every Sunday night. And probably if you miss Sunday morning or Sunday night, they'd probably do it on Wednesday night for you. But I don't know of any church at, at all that at least a time or two a year practices the Lord's Supper. What have we decided to do as a church? We have decided to do it at least once Monday, once monthly, and normally we do that on the first Sunday. So at the same time of nearly every church practicing the Lord's Supper or communion, there's much re- there's much variety in the actual performance of the ceremony. And different churches also have different views of who's allowed to take communion. Did you know it's up to the church to decide in that church who will take communion? That's one of the ordinances that he gave to the church to practice. So it's the responsibility of the church to decide who's going to partake of the Lord's Supper. Would you, would you be okay with that? I just sang too much this weekend. My voice is just a little weak this morning. So, there's also the question, how often do we do the Lord's Supper? Y'all know the answer to that? Somebody said, well, how often do y'all do the Lord's Supper? Right? We do it once a month. How come you do it once a month? The scripture says, and look at the next scripture, you got it in your, your notes there. Look at 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. So we, we take an offering every Sunday, don't we? Well, why did they take, why do we take an offering every Sunday? Because on the first Sunday of each week, they partook of the Lord. I'm sorry, they gave their offerings. And so we make that a practice too. On number two. Verse 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there may be no collecting when it comes. Now, there are those that partake every Sunday of the Lord's Supper, and they get this from this scripture, okay? And we do not think it dictates doing it every week. We, we think that it's the church's decision about when it's done because this doesn't particularly cover 
the Lord's Supper. All right, so I, I almost covered every time we do the Lord's Supper, so you ought to be able to repeat this right now, but surely you'll be able to after this sermon. So what are the different positions that churches take? There are three primary positions. Number one, open communion. You know what that means? Anybody that comes in the door are offered to partake of the bread and the wine. Open communion. It's, it's open. It's, a, it's, a, it's an attempt to be fully inclusive. We don't want to turn anybody away from the table. Now, I would call that pretty radical open communion. That's what I would call that. But it is an attempt. You know that, you know that word today? Y'all know that word? Everybody wants to be what? Inclusive. Well, I'll tell you, not everybody's going to be included in the new heaven and new earth. That's just the bottom line. And to make them feel included now would be setting them up for a great surprise at judgment. Known and willful sinners will not have a good day at the final judgment. Known, willful, unrepentant sinners will not have a good day at the final judgment. It's an attempt to be fully inclusive. They invite anyone and everyone to participate in communion, regardless of their spiritual standing or evidence of open sin. Nobody would be turned away. Number two is what we practice, close communion. Not closed, but close. Most churches place some restrictions on who can take communion. Most churches expect a profession of faith in Christ to be in good standing, not under church discipline for unrepentant sin, and some churches require baptism. That would be our position. What do we say every time? Baptized believers who are good standing, living for Christ, are welcome to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Jeannie and I, you know, when we visit churches, we normally do not partake of the Lord's Supper in another church. We think it's, uh, it's pretty special when the church does it. And so we, we just, uh, when we go, we don't partake of the Lord's Supper. That's just kind of our standing. But it's up to you. But the third position is closed communion. And I would tell you, I would lean towards closed communion before I lean towards open communion. And here's why. So closed communion is this. They would require all the above, a profession of faith to be in good standing, not under church discipline, and baptism, plus a church that practiced closed communion, you must be a member of that church. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Because I think everybody ought to have a church that they go to that they're welcome to partake of communion. They ought not to have to come to this church to partake of communion. Like I said, I would lean way closer to closed communion than open communion. And I think the scriptures we look at this morning would teach us we need to be careful 
about our personal position of the Lord's Supper and when we do and when we do not partake of it. Because it says this, it says partake of it in a worthy manner. And if you don't take of it in a worthy manner, we'll find out there's some dangers in that. Amen? Okay. Now, questions about who can partake of the Lord's Supper. Anybody want to guess how far back that goes? First century. The first Christian had questions about this. So, we support international church planners. And when we get a newsletter from international church planners, it says on it, uh, this, this spelling, D-I-D-A-C-H-E, okay? It's that institution. That word is pronounced Didache. It's really easy. Didache. Didache is a Greek word that means teaching. So the first teachings in the first century were 16 short paragraphs, and in that teaching it included who was to partake of the Lord's Supper. Okay? Early church, it either happened, now this ought to give people some thought, it either happened in Egypt or Syria. Y'all got this word? Egypt and Syria had the Lord's Supper and teachings of the early church before America was even thought of. Are y'all with me? They had it way before we did. We were one of those to the ends of the earth. Amen? All right, so, so it's the oldest surviving church order document that can be found, the Didache. Can y'all say that with me? Didache. It's really easy. All right. 16 chapters. Listen to this. It deals with morals and ethics. It deals with church practice. And it, de- it, it also deals with soteriology, salvation. It deals with eschatology, the end times. It deals with all of those things. I've never read it. I'm going to see if I can find it. I think it would be interesting to read it. Now, why would that be important? Because this was important to the early church. All right, so we want to think about that. What do we have? So this instruction gives us a general program of how the church is to do business. Its author was considered an unknown, we don't know who he was, apostolic church father, one of the first leaders in the early church. So this document addressed the Lord's Supper. That shouldn't surprise us because it was an ordinance given to who? The church by who? By Christ himself. The Didache taught that baptism was a prerequisite to taking communion. And also in the second century, a guy by the name of Justin Martyr laid down three requirements for taking communion. Here's what they were. Belief in the church's teaching baptism and living in a life living a life that Christ prescribed a life of holiness and godliness so what is communion let's go to 1 Corinthians 11 beginning in verse 17 i don't think you have that it was too much so you can turn there 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 17 it it's probably time for y'all to move around just a tad 
we have had a long weekend and it's a rainy day outside, so it might stir us to wake up. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. This is the Bible's primary teaching of Paul outside the Gospels pertaining to the Lord's Supper, outside the Exodus account in the book of Exodus in which we gain much of what we understand about the Lord's Supper. Just a few comments as we go through this. But this is instruction pertaining to the Lord's Supper. Now, you know the church at Corinth had problems. Division being one of the main problems. So uh, we can learn lots from this church. So the first uh, six or seven verses is, is, listen, Paul is dealing harshly with those who were coming together for the Lord's Supper. He deals with them harshly. Listen to this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for better, for the, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together to church, I hear that there are what? Divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So there's a positive and a negative here. There should not be divisions, but sometimes there has to be a division among people to know who's of the truth and who's not of the truth. So they had, not only were they divided, but they were probably divided over something very important, probably doctrine. Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, which it should be. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. They were just coming together and having love feast and, and having feast and they were calling it some spiritual event when evidently it was not. Because look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Can you imagine the people assembled in that first church and the diversity of education and the diversity of uh, social status and economic status? And there were people who came there that didn't have nothing. And there were people who came there that had everything and they didn't share the everything they had with others. So listen to what Paul says. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those others who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It, it should be difficult for a, a church divided for anything other than doctrine it should be difficult for any church that's divided because of anything other than doctrine to come together and participate in the Lord's Supper. Because we are saying when we partake of the Lord's Supper that we're united with who? And Christ. That's what we're saying. So a divided church would have a hard time, ought to have a hard time in partaking of the Lord's Supper. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So who's this day? Who's this ceremony all about? Huh? It's about Christ. It's about his broken body. It's about his shed blood. It's not about us. It's about him. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim what? You know what you're saying? I remember the Lord's death. It's coming to my mind now. It's coming to my mind's eye. I know why he died on that cross. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. And if I've gone a week or I've gone a month without thinking about that, this ought to bring me back to the cross. Verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Guilty. Guilty that you do not properly understand nor are willing to accept or apply what his body represents and what his blood represents in partaking of the supper. Let a person examine himself. Listen, unknown, or even worse, unconfessed sin. Unknown's one thing, but to take of the bread and to take of the juice in known and willful and unrepentant sin is a dangerous thing to do. That's why you have a moment to examine who and a moment to get on your knees before an almighty God and be quick to do what? Repent. I don't know of any word that I could use more often than this to recognize a Christian. Quick to repent. I will tell you, I don't care who you are or what kind of Christian you are, you are quick to sin, just as I'm quick to sin. So that also means that we ought to be quick like, like Paul, quick like David to do what? Repent. Communion Sunday is a moment that comes before us that we are quick to repent of our sins. Amen? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's pretty serious here. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Hey, talking about spiritual things are no joking matter. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves, y'all know where that thumb's pointing back? That's who I need to examine this morning. Truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So there's good directions about to partake of the Lord's Supper. So I want, to, I want to look at three things that the Lord's Supper is in finishing up this series of sermons. I want to give them to you right now. First of all, you have the notes. It's a remembrance. Okay? It is a remembrance. We're remembering what the, the, the bread and the, the wine represent. It is also a union. This unites us in a symbolic way with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It unites us some way in our death and His death. And also, it is an examination. Hey, it's, it's, it's probably okay to go to the doctor occasionally and get a good what? Examination. Well, let me tell you, a good time of examination is good for the body, but it's better for the soul. This is it. It's a remembrance, Luke twenty-two nineteen, And he took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you know what this represents? Remember what it represents. Number two, it's a union. A union is the action or fact of joining or being joined with something or someone else. We are united with Christ in His death. Okay? He died for us. We have died to sin and self, okay, with Him. We have been crucified with Him. And just as He's been resurrected, we've been resurrected from spiritual death to spiritual life. And just as He's resurrected at the right hand of the Father, one day we'll be resurrected to live with Him forever. We are united to Him in, in His death, in our death, in His resurrection, and in our believing in our resurrection. We're union. We're tied together. We, 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 are, we are brought together. A union is an association formed by people with a common interest. Not only does it connect us with Christ, but it connects us with who? What do we have in common? Hey, not, not our looks, not our ethnicity, uh, not our, our educational training, not our, our social standing, not our financial standing. What unites us? What do we have in common? Who, what, who, who are we united to with? Christ. That's our common ground. That is, that is our most important common ground. It's not who I'm married to. It's not what ethnicity I'm from. It's not what language I'm from. It's not what country I'm from. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm depending upon Him. And I believe that you are too. Romans 6, 3-5. But do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? When we're baptized, what are we saying? I'm dying to the old way of life. I'm putting to death 
by the way, and I'm continuing to put to death that old man. And as I come up out of the water, I'm, I'm celebrating his resurrection. I'm celebrating my spiritual resurrection to a spiritual life and looking forward to my last resurrection in which I will live forever with him. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in what? That newness of life is right now. The spiritually resurrected here, I have been resurrected not to walk in the same life I used to walk in, but in newness of life in Christ Jesus. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we've been united with him in his death like in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a what? Resurrection. That's the hope that we have. So we are sharing in his death. We're sharing in his burial. We are sharing in his resurrection. And we're sharing in his life. Amen? And number three, it's an examination. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight that we just looked at. Let a person examine, not your wife, not your pastor, not somebody that you're at odds with. Let a person examine himself, and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As a follower of Christ and a repentant sinner. So these are some questions that we ought to ask every day, but surely when we do the Lord's Supper. Am I right with God? Am I right with my relations? Do you ever worry about your relations? Do you ever worry, do you ever think about your relations with your wife, with your Lord, your kids, your grandkids, and and you feel like you're maybe out a little sink, and you ask yourself, wonder what, wonder about me, or have I done something, or okay. We, we ought to worry about a relationship, especially with the Lord. How about this? Especially with your spouse. Especially with your church family. Amen? Though it, it ought to wear us out to know that any of those are out of sorts with us. And we ought to almost be willing to go any extreme to make things right. Amen? Aren't we glad that we have the blood of Jesus? Am I repentant? Oh, come on now, church. Oh, church, that we could be more like David. Am I living in radical obedience to his word? What did he give us this word for? Am I living a life of serious godliness and holiness? So who is to take the communion as we wrap it up? Well, let's look at the first participants. 
It will give us instruction and encouragement. All right, the first participants were chosen personally by Christ. Are y'all with me this morning? Did you know that if you are worthy of partaking of the Lord's Supper this morning, just as they were personally chosen by Christ, so are you. Wow. What a privilege. Chosen by Christ. They were poor. Matter of fact, I would say that if they were here this morning, we would probably wish that they knew what a hot shower and a little deodorant was. Because their occupation, okay, and their hygiene was not what ours is today. They were poor. How about this? They were mostly uneducated. They were weak in faith. Now, Peter didn't think he was, just like you and I sometimes don't think we were, but it's pretty obvious in a few hours they're going to prove that their faith was weak. They had little concept of Jesus' ministry. You remember that, that lady that anointed him with a perfume, expensive perfume? She knew that his kingdom was not an earthly kingdom. But these guys who stayed with him went everywhere. They were still looking for an earthly king. They way, they way overestimated their ability to follow Christ. Y'all listen to me. This is, this is the proper confession. I have no ability, nor will I follow Christ in, with any success without the grace of God. I have no ability of my own to do spiritual things. If I have any ability to do spiritual things, I got it foreign from somebody else. And that's from Christ. But these same guys, listen to this. This is a key. They love Christ. They followed Him. And, and listen, they thought they were ready to die for him. You know, it's, it's one thing to think. It's another thing when tied to the stake and fuel is built up around us. And to see that fire about to light it. You know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about these guys. Yet, let me ask you, who personally washed their feet and served them the bread and the wine? Huh? Who was that? Yeah. Guess who's going to serve us on these days? Can you imagine that? I mean, I can't even fathom that. And how broken and humble we'll be. So, tell me that don't comfort you. <laughs> that ought to comfort us all. So what does this teach us? The Lord's Supper is not for super Christians. 
It's not for the necessarily knowledgeable. But it is for those that love Christ, have a desire to follow Christ, have a sense of the seriousness and gravity of their sins. They have a sense of desiring to serve Him. That's my desire to serve Him. And the last thing is, these people, we must be putting all our hope in Christ and Christ alone. So, the Lord's Supper promotes participation for believers who are walking in fellowship with the Lord. This, this communion today is for followers of Jesus. Those who have a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Those who are humble, born again, free of unconfessed sin, and living in obedience to God. That's who the Lord suffers for. So that leaves us with a question of who is not to take a communion. We've looked at pretty closely who should take a communion, who should not take a communion. All right, how about this? The unregenerate, non-believers, if you do not believe in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, His broken body and His shed blood, and nothing else for your forgiveness, you are not unrepentant followers of Jesus. The unrepentant. If you haven't been regenerated, if you're not born again, if you're not following Christ, if you are not repentant of your sins, specifically the sins that caused Christ to die on the cross, if you're not sorry for your sins, you should not partake the Lord's Supper. People who are prideful and slow to repent have not repented are not to partake of the Lord's Supper. So you've been holding on. Unwillingness to bow your knee in your heart and repent of a sin that maybe only you know about. And right now, without a doubt, you know exactly what that is. I pray that God would grant you the grace to ask for forgiveness of that sin. And those who exhibit no grace of God, what that means is people who know not people who others know, but people who know that there's no evidence of God and God's grace working in their lives.
Nobody knows that except you. Do you see evidence that Christ is in you and working in you? So who should partake? Those that love Christ. Those that have a desire and are attempting, I said attempting to follow Christ. They have some sense of the seriousness of their sin. They have a desire to serve Him. And they're putting all their hope, trust, and confidence in Christ and Christ alone. But this is the seriousness of this matter. We are not, as a people, to reject any that Christ would not reject. Christ didn't make any mistakes. We would. We need to be careful that we would not reject someone from the table that the Lord Jesus Christ would accept at the table. You see why this is such a personal matter? Well, elders are supposed to go down the roster on Communion Sunday and go down the roster and check off who's eligible and who's not eligible. No. It said you are to examine yourself. We are, we are to, know, to be no more strict than Christ was. So one last time. Until you, if you haven't read it in your one-year Bible yet, you're about to read it in your one-year Bible. What I'm preaching about. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And in a moment, we're going to partake not only the bread and the juice, but we're also going to partake of what this next verse says. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mile of Olives. So remember him. Be united totally with Him and with others in Christ Jesus. And let this be a time of an examination. So let me just give you some opportunities this morning. You've realized this morning that you are not born again. You are not truly a repenter, a believer, and a follower of Jesus. Well, I'll tell you this. If that's the case this morning, don't partake of the Lord's Supper. But I want to tell you what you need to do if that's the case. You've come to realize this morning you're not born again. You're not a follower of Jesus. This is what you need to do. You need to repent and believe the gospel so that next month on the first Sunday you'll be ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Please look at your scripture. You have it. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Y'all know the gospel. The gospel is two things. You ought to be able to quote this. The gospel is two things. The bad news of the gospel, part one, I am a 
Part two, Jesus is a, there you go. Bad news, good news. That's the gospel. The second part of the gospel is this. In saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. I mean, for some of you this morning, it's the closest it's ever been. And it never, may never be that close again. Here's what you're required to do. Repent. And just as the gospel's two parts, so is repentance. Whose way have you been going? Mine, the way of the world. You are required to return from going your way and because of what Christ did on the cross to go His way. That's the first part of repentance. And those sins that you've committed, I've committed that killed Christ, we're called to repent and to turn from those sins. So I challenge you this morning, repent and believe the gospel. Romans 10.9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and justified, and with the mouth one confesses and saved. If you've never confessed with your mouth to Christ and to others in your testimony that you are a sinner, that you need a Savior, and Christ Jesus is that sinner or that Savior, and you are willing to make Him the Lord of your life, you need to do that. And then another thing you need to do, Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Listen to me, young people. If you are a follower of Jesus, do not delay your baptism. When you have convinced yourself and convinced your parents that you are a follower of Jesus, you should be baptized. It's obedience to Christ. And we're going to have a baptism shortly. Maybe you need to be included in that. You've never been baptized as a believer. So again this morning, first of all, examine yourself. Are you saved? Amen? Secondly, are you confessed up? And the best you know how, are you following Christ? Oh Lord, I pray that this morning, if we take just a little bit of time here, to examine ourselves. Lord, those that have never been born again, there's no evidence to them that Christ lives in them, that they're born again. I pray that this morning you'd make them yours. You'd give them a new heart and a new spirit. You'd put yourself in them. Call them to repentance. Call them to confession. Call them to baptism. Call them to a new walk. I pray that you'd bring that about this morning. And Lord, as we pass out the elements, I pray to the Lord that we would remember his broken body and his shed blood. I pray that we'd remember that he took my place, that he paid my penalty. He took upon the wrath of God so I would not have to. So I pray that we'd remember this morning what he's done.